tech companies tend to shy away from regulation. And in fact, in healthcare, you know, regulations are a huge part of our story. So first of all, if you act like they don't exist, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And so from our point of view, we have embraced understanding the regulation. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion of the intersection of technology and health. If anyone can bridge the gap between technology and health, it just might be Amy Abernathy, oncologist and technologist who has led the charge, first at Duke and now at Flatiron, for rethinking the way we collect and analyze clinical information. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz, and today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Well, welcome back. Uh, good to see you. <laughs> it's been days. <laughs> it's been so long. All right. Um, so what I wanted to talk about today was, I guess it was, I don't know if it was a LinkedIn post or an interview that um, uh, that you that you did that was posted. We'll have a link on the show site. Um, were you talked about issues of both diversity in VC, but also the challenges that, that everyone faces trying to understand what do VCs actually do and what are the challenges people face. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, remember that? Yeah, yeah. Cal- uh, Carlos Alvarenga posted that. Um, I do remember that. It was uh, it was a good interview uh, from my standpoint in that I got to talk about some of those issues that, that mean a lot to me. Um, what do you think the people who, folks who are sort of outside VCs. What's the number one misconception you think either men or women have about what VCs actually do? Because it was a little bit of a hard-edged interview where you sort of took some of the, you kind of took people back, you sort of behind the curtains and talked about it. You know, I think people think it's such a glamorous job. And and it is in some ways, It's because you're so glamorous, Lisa. Oh, I know, I know. It's it's hard to be me. But, um, but, you know, it's a it's a hard job, you know, and it's a hard job because you're dealing with people's lives and you're dealing with large amounts of money and worry about what happens to both. And so uh, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of the dark side items that go along with. Well, it. you talked about you said, yeah. you know, forgetting about what people say publicly, you were saying at these weekly partner meetings, it turns out that it's about the money. Well, that's the job description, right? The job description is to turn a small pile of money into a large pile of money. So, and, and make the world a better place? Yeah, make the world if a possible. better place. Yeah, sometimes we talk about that too. And, but then you also <laughs> talked about that the um, that while you are seeing more gender diversity among um, founders, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're, you're still, it still sounds like it, it hasn't really pe- permeated the ecosystem to the extent that you might have expected. You know, I think the whole g- gender diversity thing, which has gotten tons of attention lately, and I'm glad, I'm glad of it. Um, is, but it's mischaracterized in my mind because I think that the, um, the the thing that people don't talk about enough is the impact on companies' profitability, um, on stock price, and the like when companies are gender diverse. I'm sure it's also true when companies are diverse in other ways. But, you know, for instance, for every 10% increase in gender diversity, there's a 3.5% increase in EBIT. You know, in, in studies done of large corporations, or you know, when companies that go from zero percent to thirty percent women rec- uh, representation in executive and board positions have a fifteen percent increase in profitability. You know, within a year, that is pretty stunning to me. And so, like the whole discussion, I think, has been wrong. It's it's been about you know what's right and moral and all that, which is 
of course, important. But I think if businesses and, of course, venture capital is all about business, you know, start thinking about it correctly, they'll realize how foolish it is. It's really about the bottom line. I always thought that the difference is that it's just – I mean, I even remember an interesting – I think it was an NPR show about this – where the challenge is just – People initially they, they they basically go to a local maximum where which is sort of where they where they're most comfortable working versus where you might be a global maximum which would be a more diverse place. Though it takes it might take a workplace longer to get there, but it's obviously worth the journey. It is worth the journey, and it looks like today's guest is proof uh, of that very much. So we in, in that spirit, we are pleased to welcome Amy Abernethy, currently SVP and CMO of Flatiron, which she joined in 2014 from Duke, where she was a tenured professor at the medical school and a leader. In cancer data science. We're keenly interested in discussing your current work, but first want to spend just a bit of time learning how you got here. So welcome, Amy. Hi, David. Hi, Lisa. Great to be with you. So my understanding is that you either acquired or refined your early interest in quantitative skills in a most unusual way by helping your mom write a nursing textbook. And I was hoping maybe you could elaborate maybe by starting by how your mom got the idea to write what became a gold standard textbook in the first place. Wow, great question. So um, my mom at the time had a nursing degree, so she was a nurse with two little girls. I think my sister and I were maybe three and four, and she had decided to go back and get a master's degree in education so she could teach nursing. She was trying to take care of the two of us uh, girls um, by herself, and she was trying to figure out how to... Um, she, how did she improve her own self? Moms are so badass. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally agree. <laughs> so she was studying nursing education. And while she was doing so, she realized a couple of things. So, so first of all, that women were coming back into the nursing workforce after having been homemakers and really not working for a very long time. And that the place that they would struggle and, and often basically fail out was once they got to the aspects of nursing that had to do with math. So things like calculating dosages and figuring out how much of a medicine to give to a patient. And so she got this idea to teach women how to think about the math-related aspects of nursing through kitchen math, you know, like two sticks of butter and a cup of sugar and One of my favorite examples was that you take a packet of cocoa and you put it into some hot water and that's the way that you go from solutes to solutions. And so she wrote an entire textbook around this idea of kitchen math. And, you know, I was little at the time. And and what I remember is by the time I was about eight, I was helping her edit the textbook because she would give me the math problems and I would sit at the kitchen table and I was responsible for doing some of the problems and um, you know, telling her if they were easy or hard. And then I remember I, by the time I was nine or 10, I was helping to grade some of the tests. And uh, the interesting part of this story is that not only did I learn math at a, at a young age and um, learn about it through the lens of my mom who was an educator, but also um, a person who was trying to figure out how do you make math real, uh, by the mid um, to late 2000s, my mom was looking for a co-author for her book. And so now that it's in its ninth edition and it's um, one of the most used nursing textbooks in the, in the country to this day, it's called Dosage Calculations, I've been co-authoring it with her for the last two decades. 
I have available on Amazon. That is such a cool story. Wow, that's and, crazy. And in the learning from your from your mom, in in addition to to all the, to to the math and, and developing the skills at a young age, you 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 described that she also taught you something about resilience. Yeah, you know, so my mom is the role model of tenacity. Uh, she, you know, she had a really she was in a tough spot. She was trying to figure out how, how to move forward, and you know, she doubled down and wrote this textbook. And to this day, I kind of call it this concept of being a weeble. So, you know, life smacks you down and you pop back up and figure out the next way to do it. And I, I think that's probably the thing that she most <laughs> I wonder if people remember me. weebles. The weebles wobble, but they, they don't, don't fall, fall down. down. All right. That's like our generation, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Now, in, in addition, somehow I guess all of this math uh, took because among the things that you've done um, were uh, – uh, program uh, doing a summer program where you were program computers at NASA and perhaps most importantly um, you and I went to the same nerd math camp at Duke um, in like junior high or something like that and you described that as uh, in a, actually in a similar way that I might as being uh, pretty if, if not transformative if it was validating in a certain way could you talk about that the math camp was validating or working at NASA was validating I'm going I think with both I think both. <laughs> well, you know, I'll start with math camp because what happened was, you know, by the time I was 12 or 13, I was feeling pretty weird. Um, uh, you know, I was like kind of queen of the geeks at school, which meant that I was on um, the math team and the quiz ball team, but certainly didn't get to sit in the right place in the bleachers. And <laughs> so I... Um, my mom ultimately had heard about this program at Duke, which is where David and I went to, to math camp together. And it was an incredibly eye-opening experience because there were a whole bunch of other people that had similar interests and where suddenly I felt normal. Huh, that's crazy. Uh, and the other thing that happened while I was there was I learned to program. And um, in addition to doing you know, biology and math, I, I did computer science which then the, about two years later led to my being involved in a program at NASA. And when I signed up for this program at NASA, I had this incredible belief that I wanted to be a microbiologist. And so I asked them to be in the microbiology lab. And they said, well, you know, we don't have any space in microbiology for you, but would you be over here in the robotics and artificial intelligence lab? And so by the time I was 15, I was suddenly, you know, right in the middle of what was then the first artificial intelligence lab at NASA. I think it's uh, kind of sad that it took you all the way to 15 to get to NASA. I mean, considering <laughs> you were published so many years prior to that. Um, but I know you went to Penn and pursued your interest in biology, went back towards that, and ultimately chose to go to med school at Duke, um, and where you spent really the next 25 years or so. And I think you still live there in Durham, so it sounds like you're, uh, you're pretty committed to that that locale. How do you like Durham? What, what's it about? What, what's the appeal of Durham? Uh, yeah. I, for those who, unlike I, us, have, have been there. <laughs> well, so I, I'm sitting on my back porch. Um, I have perfect blue skies. I work in New York City, so I get the excitement of New York City, but I always come back to the Raleigh-Durham area because I call this my summer lake house, <laughs> um, but it's my real house. And um, the truth is, it's just the right combination of um, interesting people and scholarly activity. And you've got, got a lot of universities, lots of sports, and then just spectacular weather. So you commute up to New York every week then? I commute to New York every week, yes. Wow. 
But you once upon a time commuted to Australia to do your dissertation, I hear. <laughs> yes. So, How um, did that come about? In 1999, I was at that time chief resident in medicine at Duke. I had um, also been pursuing oncology. And my husband got a great job in Australia. And um, he's a wonderful guy, and he'd been following me around for a while. Thing, um, And he's not in medicine. He, he's in irrigation and manufacturing, and he got offered this amazing role. And so, you know, you do what you do when, when you're part of a pair. You say, okay, well, I guess I'll figure that out. And what's interesting is once I figured out that it was the right thing to do, everything just fell into place. I started asking questions. And what I learned was that Duke had a lot of relationships in Australia. The next thing I learned was that, interestingly, um, there might be opportunities for me to learn skills in Australia that would have value in the U.S. So I wrote a grant application to the National Cancer Institute to say, hey, I would like to learn about clinical trials and cancer pain medicine in Australia, and here's why Australia has value. And then that also led to really great academic relationships in Australia that were between both Duke and Flinders University. And I think the interesting part about the whole story, um, there, there are probably many, but once I got there, um, I realized that I had this opportunity to learn clinical trials, and I didn't have much time. And so since I didn't have much time, gosh darn it, I better learn how to do clinical trials more quickly. And so that forced me to think about how would you change the infrastructure for clinical trials so that you could speed up the process. And so each clinical trial could inform the next one. And so really what I ended up focusing on was informatics and data system development and how you would use that to accelerate evidence-based medicine. Well, that was such a, a, a far, you know, far thought from oncology at the time, right? I mean, that oncology really hadn't yet adopted the thinking about big data and how to use it for, you know, what is now being called artificial intelligence and deep learning and all that. It, it, that must have been pretty interesting and unique at the time. Yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a formative time where there wasn't a lot of conversation going on about that. And interestingly, the, some of my ideas came out of direct patient care. What happened was that some of my time I was still seeing patients and I was actually doing a lot of home visits when I was in Australia. And so I was doing home visits in oncology and palliative care and I would, let's say Mondays and Thursdays, go and see patients and ask them a whole bunch of questions. And then on the other days of the week, I would involve the same patients in clinical trials and need to ask exactly the same questions and put them on a different set of forms. And, you know, I thought to myself, how redundant is this and miserable both for me as a clinical trialist as well as for patients who have to answer their, their things twice. And so that led me to start to try and figure out how do I build data systems that would serve both purposes um, and then how can I link it to the data systems that were in the hospital and the data systems that were coming out of the biology lab. And that's what led to it. That's such an that seems like such an important point uh, because what, what, if I'm if I'm hearing you right, what it sounds like you're pointing out is that the information that you gather for the care and treatment and, and the, the data associated with that should be 
both ideally incorporated into clinical studies, but also of the same quality and be able to, you know, be part of a, of a learning healthcare system. But what you're describing is they're essentially these two separate processes. This is a process on the left that we use for care of patients, uh, you know, in the day-to-day. And then separately, here's this sort of highly uh, formulaic process that's used for an expensive process that's used for clinical trials. And wouldn't it be nice if those were, um, were integrated? If that's the right understanding, what were the key hurdles, or are the key hurdles, to uh, achieving that, that, that integration? Well, it's exactly right. Um, and, and I think that was also an ethical question, which was, how can it be that I use dirtier data to take care of my patients than I use for my clinical trials? Um, isn't this person in front of me equally as important? And the other thing that you said was that in fact, it's very expensive to go through all the data collection processes for the clinical trials, and it's interestingly got more expensive over time, not less. Um, but could we rethink how data were collected both during clinical care as well as in service of clinical trials so that all data systems were of adequate quality to serve both purposes. Well, I was going to say the EMRs, though, where the data is collected in the clinical process are not really designed well for that purpose, right? They're designed to be primarily billing systems to capture codes and the like, but not usable notes and, and such and, you know such deep clinical information that would inform anything. You're absolutely right. The EMR was basically designed to serve the purposes and needs of the primary organization that was buying the electronic health record, which is the healthcare organization. And that means that they've got to take care, it needs to take care of financial needs and it needs to make sure that the health system or healthcare organization is able to manage and collect all the right documentation and move patients around in the system and um, manage for things like rack audits. But that's not the same thing as getting to discrete and readily analyzable data as needed for research or even a lot of times for quality monitoring. And I understand that the, these challenges, it's interesting, of, of the quality of the clinical data is also something even recently I heard Laura Esserman uh, really complain about, about just the, the challenge of the, of the quality of the, of the data in the medical record. And my understanding is that f- improving this and, and coming up with a better system is really what uh, attracted you to Flatiron. Could you describe your work there? Absolutely. So when I was working on this fundamental question at Duke, which is how do you get to clean enough data that it could serve both research and clinical care simultaneously. In fact, that was the whole purpose of my program in a lot of ways. I was told about two guys who had recently sold their company to Google um, and who were co-founding a company called Flatiron Health that would have as its core mission organizing cancer data and getting it ready for research and improving patient care. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've heard this story a zillion times. But I called them up. Um, actually, a series of phone calls with them uh, prompted by my mentor, Rob Califf. Former FDA commissioner. Yes. Yes. He's fantastic. Uh, so one of the things that prompted me um, to keep up with the conversation is their incredible willingness to ask the question, what needs to be solved? And I would repeatedly point to the problem of 
the messiness of the data, and in particular, the key data points for cancer are embedded in unstructured documents. And then the other thing that I realized is not only did they listen, but they weren't scared off by the fact that it was a really hard problem to solve. And so over the subsequent uh, several months of it, I was talking to them, I would say, you know, you need to work on this. And they'd say, okay, well, we've learned how to pull these data points out of PDF. Uh, now what? And we would just keep talking, and I realized that they were really willing to work together on that hard problem. And after a while, I said, you know, I think I want to join that and figure it out together. So what do you, what, what is the mission of Flatiron? What are you mostly trying to achieve there? So the first part of Flatiron was to say, how do you start to clean up the data? Um, then if you can clean up the data, you ultimately also need a network of providers uh, that are um, in need of their data cleaned and also can contribute data to the greater purpose at scale. So one of the things that we've done is we purchased an electronic health record. And so we have an electronic health record for uh, community oncology um, that serves as the source of a lot of our data. Then uh, we have a process that we call technology-enabled abstraction that we use to help to clean up the data, especially the unstructured documents. And then a big focus of our company is also on conducting research with the data sets that are embedded in the electronic health record. One of the things I thought that was so interesting um, uh, was the your when we were talking about this, um, Amy, you had mentioned that the how much, particularly in oncology, of the value is in the unstructured data. Could you go into that? Sure. So I think that as we imagine the data in electronic health records, it's easy to think about structured data and how we might make use of it. So, for example, a glucose and using the management of glucose as a way of monitoring uh, what's going on in diabetes or hemoglobin A1C. But in fact, in cancer, many of the critical data points reside in documents that are not structured at all. So, for example, histology, so if this is an adenocarcinoma or squamous cell, is information that's in the pathology report. And sometimes it's really distinct. This patient has adenocarcinoma, and it's pretty easy to pull that information out. But a lot of the times it's contextual and includes a lot of the other information that the pathologist is seeing. And this is not just histology, but it's information like biomarkers and what's in the radiology report and what's in the clinical case notes, which is a lot of the context that's got to do with the care of the patient. And so at Flatiron, we estimate that probably 50% or more of the critical data points that you need for research live in these PDF representations of data. So is your primary goal then to foster, to bring the data together, to foster better research, to result in better treatments, or is it to bring the data together to actually improve the treatment at the bedside in the end. But what is it, like, what's the business model? What are you, what are you actually getting paid to do? I think it should, it's, I think it should be both. Um, I'm going to actually reframe that and say, what's the sequence of what you do first and then second? Um, so we are cleaning the data and helping to make sure that we've built a really solid electronic health record for cancer care providers. So that's the first in the sequence, um, and we will continue to do that. 
we've now also directed a lot of our attention to the research side because the business model and the research side from a dollars and cents perspective is um, bigger than the electronic health record side so we can actually start to use our research to cross subsidize the building of the electronic health record and so now research is becoming our bigger business. Uh, in the future, I think it will probably start to move towards what's the bridge between the two. So, for example, even things like clinical decision support. So do you find it challenging to bring a new medical record into a hospital that's committed $10 billion to installing Epic? <laughs> Great question. Um, so I, I think not only is it a challenge, it's not even worth the conversation. So <laughs> we focus our, <laughs> to make sense, <laughs> we focus our electronic health record on community oncology. Okay, so gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. cancer practices that need an EHR. But there's a really important piece here. You can learn a lot. Yeah, they're all getting bought by the hospitals. I mean, they're all getting acquired. So Yeah, well, yeah, you, well that's true. You have a but declining asset. you can asset. learn a lot by doing that work. P.S. Have a nice day. Ooh. <laughs> I can definitely see your VC. Um, so, but you can learn a lot. Ouch. I don't <laughs> think she meant that in a nice way. <laughs> I didn't take it that I way. I did. <laughs> Look, I want to hear the answer. You can learn a lot by learning how to work with the data out of your own electronic health record and then doing the same work with other electronic health records. So in fact, Flatiron also works with other EHRs in an agnostic way. So we have sites that are on Epic, um, for example, uh, that are now part of the Flatiron network, and we use the same principles we learned from our own electronic health record to pull the data out of Epic and other EHRs and then clean it and then give it back to those organizations. So rather than try and sell our EHR to a big academic medical center, you know, we just don't even bother with the conversation. We, we go straight to the source. You try to abstract the learnings about abstractions. Um, so two, exactly. two, two other sort of high-level questions about, about your experiences. And we're, we have so little time, but I still, if there's even just a quick answer to each of these, which are not easy questions. Um, one of the things I think you've done that's been particularly exemplary is your, the way you've engaged in work with regulators. Could you talk about... Um, uh, you know, that, and that's something as, as the, uh, uh, you know, under Scott Gottlieb that the FDA has really seemed to be uh, in explicitly encouraging and embracing. Could you describe a little bit about your mindset here and, and how you see engagement with regulators as, as central to uh, emerging companies? Uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, we at Flatiron have celebrated um, uh, Scott's uh, role at FDA, similar to we celebrated when, when Rob was there as well. Um, you know, tech companies, in my observation, tend to shy away from regulation. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Um, in healthcare, you know, regulations are a huge part of our story. So first of all, if you act like they don't exist, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And so from our point of view, we have embraced understanding the regulations and then being the most competent superstars working within them. Uh, and if we say that what we want to do is do work that regulators are able to point to and say that's what we need, then that actually helps Flatiron immensely be essentially the go-to technology and data company of choice for, for example, pharma companies that 
have to be able to speak to the FDA. And so what we've done is really focus on that as a huge part of what we do. I think that's fascinating because there you, you I, my understanding, and it's funny because I resonate with this in the context of you know, our own you know, disclosure, our own company is built Precision FDA in partnership with the FDA. And we have an inc- I've incredibly appreciated that relationship. And here uh, you have this uh, relationship where I mean, I feel like the, I, half the, not half, but a number of publications citing your data are done by the FDA, is, you know, describing how various, um, even how biomarker testing, the rate at which it's used, the publication was actually authored, it seems like, by the FDA. Is that right? Yes. So we set up a collaborative agreement with the FDA. Um, and through that collaborative agreement, we have shared data um, and we also share lessons learned. And that allows the FDA to interrogate our data. Uh, it does a number of things. So first of all, it helps the FDA answer questions that they want to know the answer to. It gives Flatiron the opportunity to understand how is the FDA answering the questions. So, I mean, asking and answering the questions. So we get insight into how they're thinking through this and what their worries are. That's just so smart. And then that also allows us to then be able to communicate to our other customers, hey, if you want to answer similar questions like this and have the FDA understand what you're doing, here's what we've already learned. It's such an important lesson for young companies in particular who often, you know... Run the other way. Run the other way or go as late as they possibly can, yeah. So I know Lisa has some... Clever final question, but but before we get that, I, I get I get to get asked question as you know I'm fascinated by. Um, it turns out this will shock you that tech and healthcare cultures are intrinsically quite different, um, and you've really had a unique experience working at the interface. I'm just wondering what your sort of like high level views are of the cultural differences between technology and healthcare companies, and and where the synergy might be. Well. We've already just talked about, for example, some of the differences as it relates to regulations. I also think about there's huge differences in how people define hierarchies and um, essentially how people understand how to work together. <clears throat> I, I think that the opportunities, though, are in the similarities. So, you know, first of all, tech companies uh, are looking for talent and employees that. Uh, want to be at their companies and often are mission-driven. And so the mission of healthcare companies and, and of healthcare really resonates for tech. And so being able to have a combined mission, I think, is a great thing. I think the second thing that works really well there, excuse me. <coughs> Sound like you need a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> or at least some Claritin. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the second thing is that um, the opportunity is is figuring out first how to get over the language barrier, barrier because there's clearly a um, disconnect in the language between healthcare companies and tech companies and get to a common lingua franca. And once you get to a lingua franca, you all can start talking about the same set of problems. And what I have found is if you can get everybody, um, you know, looking around the same computer screen and having a conversation, you know, just really just sort of say it in a funny way, then what you start getting is a whole bunch of different points of view. And the opportunity is that the solutions that are needed for healthcare and technology lie at that interface. And so getting to the place where everybody can talk a common language and look at the same problems but with different lenses is the place where the opportunity lies. I think you're so tr- you're so right. That, that confluence of interest is so important. Um, now, Amy, you are not the first MD slash PhD slash math nerd that we have had on the show. We've had our share of those, frankly. You're welcome. 
but um, yeah, they're all David's friends. I, I don't, I don't, you know, run in that crowd. But um, <laughs> you're probably the first guest we've had who's been a can-can dancer at Disney World. So I'm wondering how you, the math nerd who didn't fit in, managed to find your way to can-can dancing at Disney World, and what that experience taught you. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. What did that experience teach me? Well, it's easy to say how I got there, which is that I went to a casting call for Disney the summer before medical school. And um, You're from Orlando. I, I mean, just, just to set the context, it's not like you sought this out exa- from across the country. Exactly. I really thought being home for the summer would be fun. Um, and uh, so I went to this casting call, and I got cast uh, to be a part of the crew at the Empress Lily, which was um, a showboat uh, on, at what at that point was called Pleasure Island. And our job was to do the review. <laughs> that really does not sound math nerdy. Lisa's <laughs> losing. Lisa's losing. I can't tell if she's jealous or, or, or appalled. But I'm loving it. I'm loving it. But you wanted to know what did I learn. And so this is the best part. For an extra 15 cents an hour, I got to be the person who did two very important jobs. I needed to measure the size of everybody's earrings to make sure that they met Disney standards. So I learned the importance of standards and, and aligning standards with um, better pay. Oh, did you look at that? That's varsity level of transitioning. <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. Also, back to math. That is good, that is good media training. <laughs> All right. First, what, was this, what was the second one? Well, so the other task that I had was I was the person who had to stand behind everybody and line up the line on the back of their fishnet stocking. And so I got to see everybody 360 and, and make sure that you could see um, the full um, total view. And there you go, learning healthcare. Wow. Precision. <laughs> now that's precision medicine. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Amy. Really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, speech, you. we're speechless, but we're uh, speechless and appreciative, I feel Amy. Like I need to go check my stockings now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you right. very well, much. It, 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 great, so inspiring the whole thing and um, the um, what you're doing and, and way you're approaching it. And um, just thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Well, that was awesome. That was so awesome. I, I you know, it's so great to hear people's real life story. <laughs> In addition to what they do for a living, right? Yeah. But like, yeah, and I think it was fascinating, especially to hear about her mom and the how she learned math at the kitchen table, and you know, because I, you know, that's a really thoughtful way to teach math to people. And I think it also captures a lot of her own view of just being very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of not like how oh, highfalutin this is what should be done. But I think she has such a great sense of patience, of such a great sense of people, and, mm-hmm. and what should be done. And really, just one of the most inspiring people I know in this space. I'm yeah. so excited. Um, for her and how she thinks and about yeah, what she's good, doing. Very good stuff. I think Flatiron is lucky to have her. Absolutely. So please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. And join us next time when our guests will be Jack Barrett, founder and CEO of WeGo Health. Based in Baston. Baston. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Foggy Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Later, y'all. Right on. <laughs> <laughs>